Welcome to the Jazz Shapers podcast from Mishkondorea. What you're about to hear was originally broadcast on Jazz FM. However, the music has been cut due to rights issues. This is Jazz Shapers with Elliot Moss on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. Listening Colour. Welcome to Jazz Shapers with me, Elliot Moss, bringing the shapers of the business world together with the musicians shaping jazz, soul and blues. My guest today is George Beavis, founder of Tide, a financial services platform for small businesses and the founder of Can Do, a social ventures incubator. With a strong tradition of entrepreneurialism in his family, it was a trip to New York during the dot-com boom that sparked George's own interest in creating online platforms. He launched a number of digital-first businesses, one of which before he even graduated, with his breakthrough being Tide, which launched in 2015, as he said, because he was seeking to fix business banking. Tide now employs over 800 people across the UK, Bulgaria and India. In 2019, George launched social ventures incubator Can Do, aiming to develop, test and scale initiatives which improve the world. Projects include software that makes mobile phones easier for older people to use and a not-for-profit venture to benefit 100 schools in sub-Saharan Africa. It's great to have you here, George. I've tracked you down, as you know. Serial entrepreneurialism, not for the faint-hearted. No, I always like to say that if entrepreneurialism is a choice, then you probably shouldn't make it. Uh, <laughs> that typically uh, entrepreneurs who, who do it do it because they feel like they really can't bear not to or they can't do anything else. You're compelled. Yes. I had regular office jobs and hated them and couldn't bear to do it any longer. And that made it a lot easier to decide to be an entrepreneur. But it sounds like you've been curious about the world and inventing stuff since you can remember. That's certainly true. Although my dad had sort of run his own business, I don't think he would have called himself an entrepreneur. He was, he was a lawyer. So as a kid growing up, it didn't particularly occur to me that I would be an entrepreneur. It just happened that I was a student at the time of the dot-com boom when, um, of course, there was this massive global explosion in entrepreneurship, and that was influential. But yes, it is true that even as a child, my parents tell me stories about how by the beach in Sussex, where we used to stay in the summer, I used to go and try and sell the stones from the beach to people walking past, which my parents found extremely embarrassing. Did you manage to sell any stones? I'm interested. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I made a lot of money out of it, no. <laughs> and, and you get to university, you went to Cambridge, and you were, I think, I believe, involved in the debating society and all these fine things, and you, again, from a young age, pretty politically connected. Tell me about the political connection, George, because obviously I think it informs why you want to make the world a better place. Where did that desire for justice and, and equity come from? Why do you think you are who you are? Intriguingly, much as I would love to say that the desire for justice and so forth came first, I don't think that's true, actually. I don't think I had any more interest in that than almost everyone else who isn't a psychopath as a child. But I do remember <laughs> as a child uh, in the 90s, I, I did very early on start watching the first set of series of uh, the original House of Cards, mm. which presented a, at the time, I thought, very attractive model of completely deceptive, evil politics that I found fascinating. Uh, so actually, if, if I were being candid, I think my interest in politics probably started with that. It was really only that I got much older and hopefully a bit more decent that I came to be fairly disgusted by that model of politics, which, as we all know, has more truth to it than, than one might like. 
but the the interest in trying to make the world a better place, I, I think, is is really no different to you know, the great majority of people who who want to do that. I'm just very lucky that these days I have the the time and resources to be able to to try. Horace Silver there with Que Paso, the trio version. I mentioned it was one of George's favourites. George, why was it one of your favourites? I first listened to that recording as part of a compilation when I was a teenager. I've been incredibly lucky. I'd gone to a school which had one brilliant teacher who ran an amazing jazz band in the school. And I was the worst player in the band, but I was also the most enthusiastic, so they would let me stick around anyway, so I would sort of dance around in the concerts. Instrument um, I was choice. playing trombone, but extremely oh, badly. Are you, we have this in common. I was extremely bad at the trombone, but that is what I played. <laughs> what grade did you get to, George? I think I only got to grade five or six. So did I. I got to grade five. I didn't do any prep, and I failed. I got 96, which is a fail. Well, <laughs> that's outrageous. I'm very sorry for you. But uh, So uh, I was in this band, and we had... Uh, wonderful inspiring teacher who led an incredible jazz band and so I got into it but obviously it's not easy to learn about jazz so I went and bought some compact discs because that was the thing at the time and my I think the first one I bought was a compilation of tunes that had originally been released on Blue Note including the one you've just heard the the Horace Silver Que Passa, which firstly I thought was beautiful moving piece of music as your listeners will have just have heard but also it's from an album by Horace Silver called Song for My Father with a beautiful image of Horace Silver's father on the front and there's a certain sentimentality to it that I, I really appreciate. You get into things, don't you? I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, you kind of go you go deep, I imagine, whatever it is, the way you just talked about the music, the things that you've been fascinated with, the website you set up when you were at university and, and things, you don't stop at the surface. Where's Where's that desire for understanding and for and real there's a word in spanish i'm thinking of dominio the domain you know the knowledge the 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 expertise why is george so driven by expertise interestingly the worst possible person to ask that question of is somebody who has that attribute because they won't know it is the uh natural it's true to, to behave that way yes um so i don't know but i i do know that i remember it being said to me by a friend as when i was a student that other people tended to talk about things and George would actually get them done. And so, yes, I think you're accurate that there is an inclination to go deep into things, uh, but I sadly I can't explain why. The things that you have gone into, though, haven't always been brilliant successes, but I think this this is what marks a proper you know, serial entrepreneur out. Speedcell.com did not do well. You ended up owing some money, but you, I think you paid it all back. Groovy Bananas... What a great name for a business. Again, you're good at this naming thing. Internet incubator, I don't know, you you can tell me there's more to know, but obviously one that was, to your point, has given you time and resources, was a striking success, which almost wasn't as well, was Tide. You know, there's the old Rajar Kipping treating adversity and success in the same way. You've done that. Is that just because needs must, or is that some sort of philosophical belief? I am not as afraid of failure as many people are, and... I think you could draw lots of explanations for that, but a big influential moment in my life, when I was 18, I lived for six months in a Tibetan Buddhist monastery in South India, where obviously the monks live in a relatively simple manner, befitting the faith that they follow. When you have lived in a very simple environment for a period of time, it's easier to learn that you can do that, that you don't need the sort of trappings of success and comfort throughout your life. And so as an entrepreneur, 
I've been on many occasions exceptionally close to bankruptcy. In fact, at an earlier stage of my career, I remember I literally was only able to pay the bills because having previously had a job in credit cards, I knew how to get credit cards that other people would be rejected from because I was my, my finances were so cripplingly bad. So I have been comfortable with that, and that makes it much easier to get up and go again. Stay with me for much more from my guest, George Beavis. He's not scared or not afraid of failure, or maybe not as much as other people. He'll be back in a couple of minutes. Right now, we're going to hear a taster from the Mishcon Academy digital sessions, which can be found on all the major podcast platforms. Mishcon Dares, Joe Hancock and Katie Ling talk about current trends in cyber fraud and what companies need to do to protect themselves. The Mishcon Academy digital sessions. Conversations on the legal topics affecting businesses and individuals today. I think that the main thing is to be proactive and not reactive. We've seen a lot of people will respond once they've been hit by a cyber attack, but in many ways you've lost your data or you've lost a lot of money by doing that. Whereas if you have these systems in place beforehand, then that's going to be much better practice. So as you said there, Katie, being proactive, not reactive, preparing and doing these things first. What can you do to prevent this stuff? Is there anything that can technology help us here? You know, is is it worth kind of building the walls around our organisations higher? Any particular tools or techniques you'd recommend for people? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think that this comes back to the basics. You know, I've urged so many people I know to just not use the same password everywhere um, and on every online service use a secure password and it sounds simple but just so many people don't do it because if one password is breached then a criminal has access to anywhere that you've been online but i think that also introducing two-factor authentication is really important and just these general security checkups that people sort of normally ignore they can be really helpful in protecting yourself the mishkan academy digital sessions To access advice for businesses that is regularly updated, please visit mishcon.com. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. You can enjoy all our former business shapers on the Jazz Shapers podcast. And indeed, you can hear this very program again if you pop Jazz Shapers into your podcast platform of choice. My guest today is George Beavis, founder of Tide, a financial services platform for small businesses and the founder of Can Do, a social ventures incubator. I want to focus a little bit on the Tide experience, you know, a very big success, a massive tick. Dealing with the success, George, and you were involved in that business for a number of years, has that been more difficult than dealing with the failures? Tide was a remarkably easy journey in comparison with the other ventures I had done. It's an old cliche in the entrepreneurial world that it's easier to build a big business than a small business, and it's true. If you've got a big, exciting mission, it's easier to convince amazing people to come and work for you. It's easier to convince investors to stump up money. It's easier to convince partners to work with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it was not as painful to build up Tide as other initiatives, and I wouldn't say that the success of the business in itself created pain. What I would say is that running a big, at the time that I stopped running it, now huge company, or I say huge by my humble standards, so so it's about, a, as you said, getting close to a thousand staff globally now, is a big bureaucratic exercise and actually a bit of a pain in the arse. And like a lot of entrepreneurs, that side of it, I really don't find attractive. And I think I've read that there was an acknowledgement from you that the that side, that scale piece, 
was not for you, and I hear that a lot. People like to get to a certain point. When you look back on it, though, and you see the strategy that was followed when you left, which was pretty much the strategy you put in place, was there a sense of, well, yeah, I probably could have told you that. Maybe I did, and maybe you weren't listening. I have been delighted with how Tide has been run since I've I've stopped running it. In the process of vacating the, the CEO job and, and passing it on to someone else, um, I got the board to agree that the strategy that I'd laid out would be the strategy that would persist. So it would have been a great disappointment if what has happened subsequently had not happened. And I'm obviously relieved that it has. I think in retrospect, I've come to realize that actually if we'd made the wrong choice about my successor, then I couldn't have relied on the strategy being followed. But it has been. Oliver's done a great job. I have the privilege of uh, watching him as a board member uh, and learning from from how he does what he does. So, yeah, fortunately, it's, it's worked out fine. But the small is beautiful thing, the going, going to the can-do business, I think you set up in 2019, and you have a small team of people. Just tell me a little bit in your own words what can-do is about. Can-do is, as you say, a small team of optimists, we say, who spot things in the world that we think could be better and try and test out potential solutions for those opportunities. So, for example, the first project we did was a not-for-profit. We launched in 2020, just when COVID was kicking off. So we thought it'd be useful to create a food delivery service for people who are self-isolating during COVID. Since then, we've created a range of for-profit and not-for-profit initiatives. We have a search engine for educational resources for teenagers, making it much easier to identify useful resources to study if you're studying science subjects for UK GCSEs, and obviously that service can expand to other countries and subjects and age groups. Also, we have some software that makes mobile phones easier for people with dementia to use or other people who find conventional smartphones too complicated. And we are just kicking off an initiative to create 100 exceptionally academic secondary schools in sub-Saharan Africa over the next 25 years. It's quite a switch setting up a financial services platform, a bank, mobile first bank, to then actually solving some serious problems. For you, though, is it more about the utility of the offering rather than it necessarily doing good, which may sound like a slight contradiction, but is it something just about fixing the problem, whatever the problem might be? Or is it really important that there are good things that come out of that, in inverted commas? It's a Fascinating question and one we discuss quite a bit in our incubator, Can Do. I think that there's an analogy that Microsoft Excel has probably done more for the global recycling industry than any recycling business you could ever name. So the transformation in how financial and other information is, is stored and processed. But I don't believe for a second that Microsoft in its early years when they were inventing Excel were motivated by a broad sense of doing good. So the truth is that a lot of good stuff that's done in the world is done at one or two removes from the ultimate good that it it achieves. And I don't take the view, actually, that an organization has to be obsessed with its social purpose to have a positive impact. Uh, you can do it at one or two removes. If you make great accountancy software, that software will assist organizations that are doing good, but you don't need to be motivated by that yourself. So in our incubator, we choose to only work on projects which directly 
in the first degree could be uh, described as having a social purpose. But if I'm candid, the real reasons for that are that my promise to my staff is that they'll be working on those things and it'd be harder to recruit them if I didn't live up to that promise. But I, I certainly take the view that it's entirely possible for organizations to create an enormous amount of uh, social good without having that as their primary initial objective. Mm. And for George Beavis himself, when when are you at your happiest? Is it identifying the problem that needs to be solved or solving the problem that needs to be solved? There is a, an interim step, which is when you think you've got a solution and for a number of hours or days you're elated that you smashed it and everything's going to be amazing afterwards until sometime later you realize, no, 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 there was something you hadn't thought of and there's mm. some problem with it. Uh, and the process of entrepreneurialism is often about just repetitively working through all of the ideas you've got until finally you discover one that when it's actually out there in the field doesn't fail. What a great definition. Final chat with my guest today. George Beavis is coming up and we've also got some Aretha Franklin alongside him. And that's in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business but it's personal. George Beavers is my business shaper just for a little while longer. You talked about optimism. I think you said you're a group of optimists and you're the chief optimist, George, even though you don't have that title. Maybe you do somewhere. You obviously are an optimist. Are you an optimist because you think you can solve problems or are you an optimist because you believe that the human condition is good? I do believe that the human condition is good, but I also believe that all the other humans can and do solve problems, that the world is a dramatically better place already than it was when I was born. So life expectancy globally is far longer. There's much less of a threat of nuclear war in the long run, despite what is taking place in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in lots and lots of ways, the world has got better in previous decades and centuries. And uh, there's every reason to infer that it will continue to get better into the future, probably at an accelerating pace. And does your optimism extend to you? Because that sense of, you mentioned earlier, before we started the program, about insecurity of, of the really successful people. The more successful you are, the more insecure you possibly are too. There's a direct correlation. For you, do you wake up in the morning and go, today, George, is going to be a good day? Or are you a bit more circumspect than that? He's smiling, obviously. Any entrepreneur who assumed that every day it was going to be a good day would be making a, a level of optimistic assumption that they'd very quickly learn uh, not, not to take that point of view. But every day can be an enjoyable day, or most days can be an enjoyable day if you have a positive attitude. And uh, yes, I'm very lucky that I am definitely in the top decile of natural optimism. So it takes a lot to to sadden me. I've never experienced a sort of deep trauma or depression or any of those other problems that um, afflict many other people. So that makes it much easier, even when things are rubbish, to, to get out of bed and bounce into the, the next day with uh, hopefully a plan for how to make things a bit better. Are you any more optimistic since you, as you said, had post-tide, had sort of officially more resources at your fingertips and, um, and the time to think about what you did next? Or actually, is the opposite true? I'm wondering just about the impact of the success on your own life. Obviously, because it looks like, for me, looking on the outside, I go, wow, there's the guy that set up Tide. Tide's really successful. Now he's doing these incredible things. He must be in a great place. 
I am very privileged to be in what, by my standards at least, is a very is a great place. Mm. So the thing that I most wanted to be able to spend the remainder of my adult life doing is what I am currently doing, and that is experimenting, building interesting initiatives which have potential to have substantial impact to improve the world. And there is nothing I would rather be doing. There is no job in the world I'd rather have than the one I, I currently have, and I don't anticipate that I will have any other job into the future. So does that make me more optimistic? It certainly makes me more hopeful that uh, I can achieve my objectives because I now have the resources to do that, but I was always pretty optimistic. And in terms of the the followership, the, the ability beyond these projects you're doing, beyond the products that you're creating and the services... What you really sound like you want to do is have millions of people behaving differently. I mean, as I, again, the, the impact of these products is that people's lives will be better. But you also need all the other people to sort of get behind the notion that these things are important. I'm not interested in building personal fellowship. As a much younger man, as a student, when I first got interested in politics, I probably was interested in that. But actually now I see fame, which some of my friends have as a negative and a downside. I don't think it really comes with very much upside. So I'm definitely not interested in personal followership. It is the case that the initiatives that my organization is driving will need supporters. And so I'm keen for the initiatives to build followership. But for me personally, it's it's actually unattractive. It's been very good to talk to you, George. Thank you. And thank you for being so candid. Uh, just before I let you disappear, what's your song choice and why have you chosen it? As a teenager, I delighted in listening to Jazz FM and in particular its iconic afternoon presenter, Pete Young. And he used to start and end his show with Jimmy McGriff's The Worm. So I thought it would be an outrage if I didn't uh, attempt a very small honour to him by suggesting that that be played today. That was Jimmy McGriff with The Worm, the song choice of my business shaper today, George Beavis. He talked about being not as afraid of failure as others might be. He said insightfully, it's easier to build a big business than a small one. And really importantly, his definition of entrepreneurialism, that it's all about repetitively working through ideas until you find one in the field that doesn't fail. That's it from me and Jazz Shapers. Have a lovely weekend. Jazz Shapers on Jazz FM. In partnership with Mishkondorea. It's business, but it's personal. We hope you enjoy that edition of Jazz Shapers. You'll find hundreds more guests available for you to listen to in our archive. To find out more, just search Jazz Shapers in iTunes or your favourite podcast platform or head over to mishkon.com forward slash jazz shapers.